we've got some wonderful stuff to look at from the scriptures this morning. So I invite you to pray with me as we get ready. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you now to bring clarity to our thoughts, uh, to remove all distraction and give a spirit-birthed capacity for concentration. Look, God, may the entrance of your words bring light and may your word bring healing and wholeness, health, vigour and vitality to our spiritual lives. And so we submit these moments to you now and invite you to reign among us, to minister to us. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in email um, this week, we're going to be looking at this passage of Scripture this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. So if you've got your Bibles, you may want to turn with me to begin to get ready for that. And I mentioned, um, have you, any of you heard of that phrase, the rapture? Uh, if you were like me, you grew up in an era where there was a lot of interest uh, brewing and bubbling away uh, about end times and it wasn't unusual to hear uh, some of this teaching about the rapture. It was actually quite a, a steady diet. So I remember as a young person um, going along, I think it was to Wagen uh, Town Hall. It might have been Narragin Town Hall, and I watched that movie. I think that's a 1972 movie. Does that ring any bells for any of you? Some of you are being re-traumatised as you see that, called A Thief in the Night. It, it was a terrible production, of course, 1970s, but... The essence of the movie was showing this uh, perspective of end times where Jesus comes secretly and snatches believers out. They just disappear. You know, blenders are left going in the kitchen, right? And uh, whisks us away and then unveils, it sort of triggers a seven-year period of terrible persecution and tribulation with the beast and the antichrist and 666 and all that. So that was the era that I grew up in. I I remember going along watching that. It was also the time when Larry Norman had his classic song. Do you remember this? It was the stuff of beach missions and emotion-laden appeals. Um, This is uh, late 60s, early 70s. Haughting lines like, Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Uh, This was the teaching that was uh, a regular part of our spiritual diet, talking about the end times and this event that was going to occur, the rapture. I don't know about you, but I can remember, for those of you who uh, received that kind of teaching, the effect that it had on me as a young child was simply terrifying. I still recall sitting in the car on uh, Elliott Road in Karina, uh, just weeping uncontrollably, and my mum coming out to try to coax from me, what is it that's so upset you? And I finally told her as a six or seven-year-old, I'm just scared that Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to be left behind and you're all going to be taken. It, it had um, quite an incredible sense of provoking fear even uh, to believers who knew that they were saved it was quite unusual it was fed 
of course, by a very popular reference Bible at the time, Schofield a Study Bible or Reference Bible, and that was complete with a lot of notes that explained this whole perspective of the end times, of the rapture. Uh, there was also another very common book by Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, uh, brought out in 1970. And so all of that was, of course, contributing to this uh, prevailing perspective of the end times. So the first Bible college that I went to, riding my motorbike across the Nullarbor to go to it, uh, this was the perspective that they taught, thoroughly, in detail. So I absorbed it all. I'd been raised on it. I went to Bible college, was taught in it. I embraced it wholeheartedly. Then a little later, there was a whole series of novels that came out. Now, some of you uh, younger might remember these, the Left Behind series, 1995 to 2007, 12 books in all. I still remember students coming to me, Christian students coming to me with that same sort of fear I had as a child, saying I'm petrified that Jesus has come back and, and uh, will come back and I'm going to be left behind. And it was as recently as 2014 that Nicolas Cage starred in a movie based on those novels called Left Behind. So... It's been um, a, a lot of history in the making and some of it quite recent. If I was to encapsulate the teaching into diagrammatic form, this is the way I would represent it. So there's a timeline representing a timeline of history. Jesus has died, has risen, and then 40 days later ascended to heaven where he is reigning as... Uh, king at the father's right hand the picture is not to scale okay there is a time coming when jesus will come um, to those of uh, us as believers who are waiting for him he will come secretly like a thief in the night and we will be raptured that's the word caught up snatched up um Jesus will do the U-turn. He'll whisk us away. It's, it's quietly, it's suddenly. We'll be captured up and taken back with him to heaven. That triggers this terrible seven-year great tribulation period with unspeakable evil that just begins to be unleashed over the planet. And then Jesus comes properly and fully at his second coming and so ensures the rest of the stuff. That... That bit I've circled, that's the event that uh, was in focus, the rapture, where Jesus has this sort of halfway coming, snatches us up, we return with him back to heaven. Now, there were a number of characteristics that went with this teaching. So there was a lot of speculation and date setting that went with this teaching. It was not unusual. In fact, it was quite common to see very elaborate charts, more so than mine, detailing all the events that were going to transpire. And associated with that speculation and date setting would be some very careful cross-checking of current events, particularly what was happening in the nation of Israel. And so you really had to keep an eye out for the construction of the temple. That would be very important. It was only as recently as August last year I was castigated by a chap not from this church down south, who uh, was amazed that I didn't want to get into a conversation with him about the uh, construction or the reconstruction of the temple. And uh, he said, I thought you were a Christian. 
uh, it, a very real focus. And so there'd be this sort of uh, checking of current affairs and uh, prophetic details. And often uh, it would be also associated with quite a sense of a escapist withdrawal. Uh, the world is going to pot. Our only hope is that we're going to be whisked out of it. And, and surprisingly, there'd often sort of be this isolationist, let's, um, let's build some bunkers and store up some baked beans and collect some AK-47 so we can really withstand all this bad stuff that's going to come. Now, as I'm talking about all that, I guess there's, there'll be some different reactions going on in some of you. I'll try to pick that up in a second. Sometimes it got a little bit crazy, okay? So back in 1992, there was a small church in Sydney that caused a media frenzy by predicting the very day and hour of the rapture. The moment was set for 1am Eastern Standard Time on Thursday the 29th of October 1992. And once that date was announced to the members of the church called the the Mission for the Coming Days in Gladesville, not far from where I first uh, pastored as a young assistant pastor, the members started quitting their jobs and giving up their possessions. And meanwhile, the media was camped outside the church waiting. And even now, you will see bumper stickers like this. Have you seen that one? The vehicle will be unmanned or driverless or something to that effect. I really like this one. This one tickled my fancy. You've got to understand a little bit of theology about that, but I I really like that a lot. In case of the rapture, this car's got to be pulled up off the side of the road while I reconsider my previously amillennial eschatology. Now, that's a mouthful, I know. I was considering a subtitle for this series called The Ubiquitous Eschatology of the Apostles' Epistles, but my wife said perhaps that wasn't the best subtitle for this series on our blessed hope, and perhaps we actually should um, try to fine-tune that a little, so I've opted for that one instead. Um, Listen, I tell you all that because in my experience, uh, this topic generates a lot of feeling. In fact, seven out of the last eight churches where I pastored, this was a very big topic. So much so that in a couple of churches, I actually made the assessment that I shouldn't even broach the topic and suggest an alternative uh, reading of future events. It just would have been too contentious. So sometimes there is a lot of feeling attached with this. As I begin to raise this topic this morning, some of you here will be going, yes, that's what I believe. Do you dare to question that, Pastor? (laughs) And uh, I, I do want to raise some questions about it. Some of you, as I said, might be feeling re-traumatized by just the memory of those childhood experiences or those novels. Others of you have been shaking your heads, looking blankly at me, going, what on earth are you talking about? How did we miss all that? God bless you, if that's your case. Um, You may yet run into it, and it really is worth examining it. But if you're here this morning or online this morning, getting ready switch me off, Um, because you're feeling a little bit on edge that I might be calling this uh, system of understanding the end times into question. I want to assure you that I'm not doing so uh, flippantly or lightly. What I want to do with you this morning, if you will 
grant me your time and attention, is to walk slowly through a very key passage of Scripture that was frequently pointed to to support this teaching. And I want us to ask gently and respectfully, is that what the Apostle Paul taught about the end times? And remember, I'm not coming at this as a newbie. It's what I was raised in. It's what I was trained in. But do you know, when I went to teach this first as a young pastor, I just felt that there was a holy pause put on me. Instead of just beginning to trot out what I had received and embraced, I just felt a, a, a discomfort and that I needed to put that very tightly constructed system of thought to one side and just read and reread what did Jesus say? What did the apostles say about the end times? And as a result of that, some different conclusions began to dawn for me. And I want to begin to share them with you this morning. Based upon scripture, upon a careful reading, respectfully and gently, I still have arguments with my dad with good humour about, you know, who's going to be wrong or right and I might have to apologise uh, as I'm getting whisked away and he'll say, see, I told you, son. So I, I want this to be gently and respectfully, but I do want us to consider seriously what the scriptures are talking about. So... The passage we're going to look at this morning is this one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. If you've got your Bibles, read along with me. This is um, primarily from the NET version. It has some great footnotes, and I've just uh, paraphrased a couple of little bits where I uh, felt that it needed some clarity. So here's the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. Now, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not go ahead, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up, there's our word, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so let's bring our attention to this passage and focus in on what's the Apostle Paul talking about here. Well, the first thing that comes out is that there is a pastoral situation that has emerged there in that um, church that is gathered in Thessalonica. So when you read back through Acts chapter 17, you discover that Paul had a very short missionary trip in that northern region of Greece. Sarah and I have been there. It's a beautiful area. Paul travelled through there. He was there for three consecutive Sabbaths, reasoning and persuading with the uh, Jewish people in the synagogue. 
And he was working from the Old Testament and saying, look at all these prophecies. Jesus of Nazareth fulfills them all. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And so he reasoned and persuaded there were a number of Jews and Greeks uh, who were convinced and they became part of a fledgling community. And then Paul got ran out of town, as was often the case. He wasn't there for long. But it was long enough to not only explain to the believers about the first coming of Jesus, but also to begin to share with them about the second coming. He says as much in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said, don't you remember that while I was with you, I told you these things. So he's given them some information, not only obviously sufficient of the gospel about the first coming, the death and resurrection, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also begun to unpack something of the second coming of Jesus. So they know something, you see. But they don't know quite enough to guard them when tragedy struck. So here they are as a a fledgling group of Christians. Um, Early on, Thessalonians is one of the very first letters the Apostle Paul penned. Here they are, they've learned that Jesus is coming back and then... Some people pass. Some people have fallen asleep. Some beloved Christians, a Christian brother, a Christian sister, they've fallen asleep. And so the believers there are thinking, hang on, we were waiting for Jesus to come back and now we thought it was going to be very soon, if not immediately, and now some of our number have died. And so they start asking questions like, What will happen to those believing brothers and sisters who have now passed prior to this return of Jesus? Will they miss out? If we're alive still and they were fully expecting it when Jesus comes back, we'll have a personal experience of Jesus' coming. Will they have missed out in some way? Will they be at a disadvantage, you see? Will, Will we be? Uh, on the up, and and they'll somehow be left out, missed out in some way. So the Apostle Paul says to them, listen, I've given you some teaching, but I need to give you some more essential teaching. I don't want you to be uninformed about this. The, The lack of essential teaching is setting you up to grieve in a hopeless manner. And what you need is a bit more information not to stop you grieving altogether, but to infuse that grief with hope-filled perspective. So that's why the Apostle Paul is ministering in this way. You can see it. It begins to arise. It becomes manifest as we get here. There's a pastoral situation. Does that make sense? The believers have heard about Jesus' return, but then some of their number have passed, and they're going, hang on, are they going to miss out in some way? And Paul wants to assure them, okay, I want to give you some information so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. So how does he deal with this? Look at this. What does he do in this letter where he speaks repeatedly about the the return of Christ? This is what he does. He brings a theological conviction to them. This is the way the Apostle Paul would pastor. He would bring theological truth and he would apply it for their pastoral well-being. I've taken a page out of his book. That's exactly what I intend to do with my vocation as long as the Lord gives me breath, is bring theological truth for pastoral benefit. So this is what Paul does here. He says, now, notice this. Look at this. 
He's in you, he is employing and using uh, logical language. Look at the words that he uses. For since we believe, da-da-da, so we also believe, da-da-da. Do you see what he's doing there? This is a very logical argument. He is working from something primary and saying on the basis of that there is something secondary. Here is something fundamental and as an inevitable consequence there is something else that follows. It's like us saying we believe in the laws of gravity therefore we believe that it's potentially dangerous to work at heights without safety harnesses and equipment. I was watching some footage this week of... Um, the blokes who were doing the Empire State Building back in the 1930s, just wandering around at huge heights. Since we believe in something firm and established, then as a consequence, we believe something else as a subsidiary, a corollary. So that's Paul's logical argument. That's his language. Since we believe this, therefore we believe that. Now, what is his argument? What does he fill it in with? Well, his, his argument is that he reiterates a foundational historic belief. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, therefore, as an inevitable consequence, we also believe what? Now, you would expect him to say, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also, consequently, believe that we will be raised. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, since Jesus died and rose again, so we also believe that God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep as Christians. What does that mean? Now, this will take a little bit of unpacking. So stay with me. Um, what we have to understand here is the nature of human existence, of what is it that constitutes human life, human death, human resurrection, particularly as it pertains to our material and immaterial part. Hang with me, I know it's a bit dense, but follow this. What is it that constitutes human life? Think about creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, how did God create Adam? God made the man from the dust of the earth. That is physical components, right? And then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being, a nefesh. Do you see what that is? There is a physical component and a spiritual component, a material component and an immaterial component, and the combination issues in life. There's a living being. So what is the nature of life? It's the combination of the spirit or the soul with the body. That's what it is to be a living human being. You have a, an unseen element in you that is animating your whole physical existence you have life so what is it then that constitutes death death is the separation of the soul spirit from the body as james put it so matter of factly the body without the spirit is dead so you think of jesus when he was on the cross what happened in those final moments as jesus died the scriptures say that he um, gave out a loud cry and then he breathed his last. He expired. He exhaled his spirit. As a voluntary act, he actually uh, released his spirit. And he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So what happened to his body? 
His body now hung lifeless on the cross. And so his body was taken down from the cross and laid in a freshly cut tomb. What about his spirit? Where did his spirit go? Well, his spirit obviously went into the Father's care. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But do you remember what he said to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So where's Jesus' body? It's now wrapped in a tomb, but where's his soul spirit? It's now in the Father's keeping in paradise. Huh? That's the nature of death, do you see? The soul spirit has departed from the body, leaves the body lifeless, and the soul spirit is somewhere else. So for us, in this New Testament era, where does our soul or spirit go when we die? Paul is very clear. Philippians 1, when he writes there that he's torn between the two. Shall I stay and minister to you or shall I depart? Oh, I long to depart that I may be with Christ. So where does your soul spirit go at the moment when your immaterial part um, extracts from the body? Your spirit soul goes to be in the presence of Christ as a disembodied spirit. Do you follow? So what happens then at resurrection? If life is the combination of body, soul, spirit, death is the separation of body uh, from soul and spirit, what is resurrection? Resurrection is when the spirit of the person is reunited and reintegrated with a resurrected body in a whole new order that's no longer susceptible to death. It's not a resuscitation only to die again. He's risen on the other side of death with a body that is never more susceptible to disease or sickness, can no longer be affected by death. It's that recombination. Okay, that now sets us up to understand this. So what's Paul saying? Since we believe that Jesus died, there was a separation, and was raised, there was a reintegration, even so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Bring what with Jesus? Bring those who have fallen asleep. Yes, but what part? Our spirits. Do you see that? Now, I couldn't find any commentators yet that drew this out. But my understanding is the bodies of those believers in Thessalonica had been uh, put in graves or fed to lions, but their spirits immediately transported in a disembodied state to be in the presence of the Lord. And Paul is saying here, here's a theological conviction, since we believe that Jesus died and raised Therefore, consequently, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus our disembodied spirits, if we've passed, believers, with him at his return, awaiting resurrection. Does that make sense? That is a theological conviction. Paul is bringing truth to bear to a pastoral situation. How are we going? (laughs) Yeah? All right, let's keep going. So... Partial situation, theological conviction, now he gives a prophetic declaration. He says, For we tell you this by a word from the Lord. Not the word of the Lord, the message, but a word from the Lord. 
what is this referring to? It could have been uh, one of the oral teachings of Jesus that was recorded in the Gospels. It could have been one of the oral teachers, teachings of Jesus that were not recorded in the Gospels. Paul quotes one of those in Acts 20. Or it could have been just a personal direct revelation from the Lord to Paul. But he's saying, I am giving you a prophetic declaration now. I am declaring this to you by a word from the Lord. If it is one of Jesus' teachings from the gospel, it may well be this one from Matthew 24, where Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather. Oh, the uh, highlight went in the wrong place there. They will gather his elect from the four winds. I meant to highlight gather, not four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So here's a, a prophetic declaration, a word from the Lord. Now, what's he say? He is referring to how does he describe the return of Jesus? He uses a particular word, very important. He's going to go on to say, at the coming of the Lord... The living will not precede the dying, those who have who've died, not dying, those who have died, those who are sleeping. Even the word sleeping makes you expect there to be a resurrection. But I want you to notice what word Paul is using here in the original. We who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. That's how our English translations put it. The original is the Greek word parousia. Everybody say that word, just get your lips around it. Parousia. Say it again, just to keep you awake. Parousia, if somebody's nodding next to you, give them an elbow, say, say, parousia, parousia, okay? What is parousia? Parousia is a wonderful term. It's one of Paul's favourite terms. He uses it more than any other New Testament author. It refers to, it was a technical term, that referred to the arrival of a dignitary to a town or a city, an emperor. And... In the preceding time, there'd be a whole heap of preparation to get ready for this arrival, this uh, arrival of an emperor, a dignitary, a, a, a king. And so uh, there'd be great uh, pomp and splendor. Jesus and the apostles use this word to refer to the future glorious arrival of the triumphant king back to this planet. So David II has a brilliant book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, he wrote this, The picture is of an ancient visitation. When an important personage visited a first century citizen, sorry, first century city, the citizens would stream forth to meet him several kilometres before his actual arrival and accompany that dignitary back in. Once we understand this, we see how mistaken it is to read Paul's words to mean that Jesus only comes to the air and then returns to heaven with his raptured faithful. The thought of an important personage coming so near and then returning home would be com without completing his visit would be a joke. So said David Second, a well-respected scholar here in Perth. So there's only one parousia, not 1.5. Paul is talking about the parousia here and he's saying, oh, we who are alive won't have an advantage over those who have fallen asleep. Don't worry. And now he begins to outline a sequence of events. This is wonderful. So he says, firstly, the first thing is the Lord himself, not a delegate, 
Jesus is not going to send an archangel to do the job on, in his place. He's not going to say, I'm busy here, I'll keep here, you just go and do this on my behalf. No, the Lord himself will descend. He will come out of the heavens, out of his heavenly realm, and he will appear. And notice that there's a couple of accompaniments. So notice that Paul uses three uh, with words. The Lord himself will descend with, with, with. With what? Let's have a look at this. With, firstly, the shout of command. It's like a battle cry. It's like the kind of command that a, a commander would have given to his soldiers on the battlefield. It's like charioteers uh, yelling out their orders to the horses. So think of Jesus when he is at Lazarus's tomb. And Lazarus has been in there for four days and he stands after praying and he yells with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. One old commentator said how important it was that Jesus prefaced that command with a singular name. Otherwise, the whole hills would have been alive with people bursting out of the grave. Jesus gives a bellow, a loud command, and the earth begins to rumble. Something is going to happen. This creation recognizes the voice of its maker. Not only the shout of command, but also the voice of an archangel, a high-ranking angel with multitudes that will be under his authority, be it Gabriel, be it Michael, we're not sure. And then thirdly, with the trumpet of God. Don't think a polite little orchestra instrument. Think a huge battle bugle. Think one of those shafars, you know, those sort of ram's horn. This is a battle cry. Now you tell me, does that sound secret? Does that sound like Jesus is just quietly sort of going to whisk people away and all of a sudden we'll wake up and the blender will still be going in the kitchen? <laughs> hey? No, we're talking about the parousia here. There's only one parousia, not 1.5. And the Lord himself will descend. I tell you what, this does not give any impression of being secret. This gives all of the impression of being one grand, glorious, momentous event where every eye will see him. This is the first element in the sequence of events. So on, let's go quickly. The Lord will descend. Then secondly, the dead in Christ will rise. So he's talked about the Lord. Now he's going to talk about the dead in Christ. What will they do? They will rise. So that returning king with the disembodied spirits of departed believers are now somehow reinfusing those um, deceased corpses that have littered the earth. And so there is going to be resurrection. Now there's a reuniting of spirit and body. All of a sudden, graves start popping open. All of a sudden, there are atomized, dispersed believers, be it in the ocean, fish food, as Adam said last week, uh, be it in hidden places of the earth, all of a sudden they are being reconstituted and they are rising in resurrection order with a new kind of body that will never be susceptible to disease or sickness. The Lord himself descends. It's loud. You won't miss it. The dead in Christ will rise because there's been a reconstituting. Jesus has brought with him those disembodied spirits and the bodies are resurrected. The third element is now he's going to talk about the living, those who are alive. What happens with us? And here's this translation from the NET. 
will be suddenly caught up. They've translated that well. That word uh, speaks of an action that is so sudden that it it's almost verges on being violent. It's so forceful. It's like a giant magnet being passed over a whole bunch of iron filings and it just flicks up quickly. And so the, the Apostle Paul is saying, at the parousia, the Lord himself will descend, the dead will be raised and we who are still alive will be caught up, snatched up. And in the process, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, there'll actually be a transformation in these bodies. We will be changed so that we have the kind of body appropriate to the nature of the kingdom that Jesus will introduce. We will have resurrection bodies in that moment too, en route, (laughs) on the way up. All right? So the Lord himself will descend, the dead in Christ will rise, the living will be snatched up. What happens next? Then there is a meeting. Do you notice this? We will meet the Lord in the air. That word is very important. It occurs only three times in the New Testament. You can chase up those other two references if you want. Here's the importance of this uh, word meeting. It always refers to a, a, a group of people from a hometown going out to meet the dignitary, doing the U-turn and coming back with him. So in Matthew 25, verse 6, the wise maidens who've got their lamps ready they hear the bridegroom's coming they go out to meet him and do a u-turn and return into the banqueting feast in acts chapter 28 word has got out that the apostle paul is coming to rome and so the believers from rome travel 70 k's to go and meet him do a u-turn and return with him back into the city so you see when the apostle paul uses this word he is describing the way that we rise to meet Jesus and then come back as his attendants to this planet that was his and he's going to give the spring clean of eternity and begin to reign in this new place. The Lord will descend, the dead in Christ will rise, the living will be snatched up, there will be a meeting and then lastly, so we will always be with the Lord. Always be. Now, to any of you, to any of you who know the pain, and I know it, I remember those moments of sitting at the bedside table in those final moments of death and sensing, here, the teenage sweetheart, she's just gone. Her spirit has departed. The sense of being bereft, the bereavement, she has gone The body is now lifeless and her spirit in the presence of Jesus, but I've been left. Here is Paul's comfort. Do you hear it? We will always be with the Lord. There will never be a separation again. Not between us and the Lord and not between believers, be it those alive at his coming or those who have passed. We will be with the Lord forever. No more separation. That's the order of events. So Paul sums it up. Here we go. You've been giving wonderful attention. I'm going to wrap it up very quickly now. What's his concluding application? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you see what he's done? He's just gone full circle. So that original pastoral situation where believers in Thessalonica were grieving, going, have these um, departed believers, are they going to miss out? 
that pastoral situation has now been remedied. How? By theological conviction and prophetic declaration of our future hope. And now Paul has passed it on to us and he says, now you regularly, repeatedly rehearse these truths to each other. Tell each other, this is not the end. The day is coming and it will be soon when Jesus will return. And whatever separation or pain we experience now will not last into eternity. We will be caught up, raised imperishable or changed on the way up and we will return with our King, never more to be separated. And I think of that old Bible college friend of mine, Edmund Wanganeen over in Adelaide. I think his son used to play AFL. Some of you might remember that surname. A lovely Aboriginal chap. He used to come up with a wry smile and he'd speak out the corner of his mouth. He'd say, guess what? He'd say, Jesus is coming back. He'd say, and then he'd turn around. I could still see him in my mind's eye. His shoulders would just sort of be shrugging as he was laughing. He was, what was he doing? He was encouraging us. Jesus is coming back. Any separation now will not be eternal. Encourage one another with these things. Okay. So, if I were to try and provide a diagrammatic form of what um, that passage has said, I would do this. There's a timeline. There's Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus has ascended. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father. It's not to scale. There is a day coming when those who have died in Christ and those of us who are still alive at that point in history, Jesus will have his parousia, his arrival as king. And then watch this. The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive and remain will be caught up and we will come with him as his attendants into the whole new order that he will bring. That, I believe, is the teaching of the apostles. So, when we consider this, you might ask the question, where did this teaching of a secret coming and a secret rapture come from? Good question. It's very well attested that the majority of the church has never believed this. I've got a list of 10 different books and authors, all well-respected, who say it all goes back to a chap called John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. In the 1830s, uh, he was part of this Plymouth Brethren uh, meeting, uh, Edward Irving's meeting. There was a young girl who uh, gave a prophetic word and Darby, respected that he, as he was, actually took that on board as a prophetic word to help explain future events. It was Darby that actually formulated this teaching of the secret rapture. It got written into um, the Schofield Reference Bible and the rest is history. And you can see any amount of YouTube clips talking about the rapture. Just Google it. it you will be up all night going these ones, all right? And I want to say what Inigo Montoya says. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> I do not think 
the rapture means that we get whisked away while the world goes to pot. Now, you can, you can still use the word if you want to use the word rapture. I'm not saying I'm legislating against it. I don't have that authority, okay? It is derived from the Latin version of it. But all I'm saying is I think the word rapture has been so attached and entangled with this whole system of thought that it may actually be better to dispense with the word and use another biblical word like parousia that puts the focus firmly on Jesus. You see, the emphasis throughout Scripture is that our blessed hope is what? It is the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Friends, the church will not finish with a fizzle or a whimper as we quietly exit stage left and the world goes to pot. The church will be caught up to be attendance to the king as he returns to this earth. And so there's not to be the speculation and date setting. We're to leave that in the Father's care. It's not for you to know the times and seasons, Jesus said, which the Father has determined by his own authority. What are we to do? But you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what we're to get on with, is to sharing this message of Jesus to all the nations and then the end will come. May our focus be upon this glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ and what awaits us. And thus ends a long message. Now some of you will have heaps of questions and maybe I should um, open up a Bible study in a couple of Wednesday nights and just uh, have a whiteboard and let you throw questions. But for now, let the wonder of that truth settle upon our hearts. Why don't we pray and we're going to sing together. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that this world will not continue as it is. But you have set the hour, the day, when you will turn to your Son and say, It's time. Holy Father, I pray that we will be a people who are not swept up in frenzy or crippled by fear, but may we be a people who are encouraged with a holy boldness to live for our God, to proclaim this message, to fulfill our mission until that day when we will see you coming in the clouds. Father God, I ask that you will cause us to be a people who by the power of the Holy Spirit abound in hope. So would you minister to that even now as we sing. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.